0: Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather, since my man and I ain't together. Keeps raining all the time. If
1: they put another plant in Chester, we will tear it down.
0: Up in the sky, stormy
1: weather. Since my when the plants come here, they're bringing us jobs. You're bringing us jobs, but at the same time, you're killing, killing us. us. Long, like I said, long as they making that that money, they long as they're making their money, they don't care. All they're going to do is be
0: successful in driving away people like me, who have the ability to stay here, to pay the taxes, to buy the homes. They're going to drive us the hell out of here. And those of us that they don't drive off, they're going to kill them, slowly. Since my man and I ain't together... Those kind of activities are just shadows. The shadow of a gun can't kill. The shadow of a knife cannot stab. And the shadow of a dog cannot bark. Of course, the gun is present, the knife is present, and the dog is there. But we're not running from shadows. We're not going to turn back. We're not afraid. We're not afraid. I'm weary of time. time. So weary
1: time. It's a dark and misty night in 1933. And we're at the Cotton Club in Harlem, New York. We're here to see African-American artists from all around the East Coast perform. But there's one act we have our eyes on in particular. All the way from Chester, Pennsylvania, young vocalist Ethel Waters is in Harlem tonight to debut her song, Stormy Weather. The song compares the sorrow of breakups to the hopelessness of long rainstorms. The dark clouds block out so much light that she starts to feel as if the sun isn't even there like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Little did she or anyone else in the club know, but after this one misty night in Harlem, Ethel Waters leaped into a 60-year career in celebrity. But while Waters burst into stardom, her hometown had a storm of its own brewing. 100 miles south of our cozy bar in Harlem, something started happening in the city of Chester that, like the legacy of Waters, hasn't faded till this day. PBS journalist Will Sullivan puts it like this. Quote, As cities around the world plan for clear skies and zero-waste futures, Chester feels trapped in another era. The war over Chester's air is long, but even after 100 years of fighting, residents still haven't glimpsed the light at the end of the tunnel. How can this be? Well, how about this? Grab your coat and let's get out of this club, because we're catching the first train to Chester to find out. I'm David DiMarco, and this is episode two of Chester is Rising. All right, Chester, 1933. Not what you expected, right? This place is booming. And that's because World War I brought a huge influx of European and African-American workers to the port city. The population rose to 60,000, nearly double Chester's population today. Let's take a ride into town. Here we are on West Third Street, Chester's commercial district. And as you can see, Chester had a booming marketplace in 1933. Right here is a dance club, there's the movie theater, beauty shops, restaurants, and bars. People from outside the city are here to do their weekend and holiday shopping. There's plenty of chatter in the streets, it's lively. All right, first glance is over, let's hop back in the car and I'll show you what's really going on here. So yes, Chester looks a lot more active and cosmopolitan compared to today, but development can be deceiving. First, there's a whole underside of this economy you can't see. Boomtown development like this doesn't come without a downside, and since Chester's leadership wasn't prepared for the influx of workers, at night the streets permeated with vice. In 1933, Chester was seen as, quote, the town where anything goes, where prostitution, drug trade, public drunkenness, and illegal gambling practices operated freely. As these practices festered, as did Chester's crime rate. Second, look back at all those diverse storefronts and you'll find a sign in the window, whites only. While Chester had a booming marketplace and shipyard, almost all of these spaces were racially segregated. Chester has had heightened racial tension since the onset of World War I, where thousands of Southern Blacks moved to Chester in search of more political freedoms in the North. Instead of welcoming the Black families with open arms, the white portion of Chester started blaming Blacks for the city's vices. Both through local papers and by word of mouth, rumors of, quote, Black incivility spread throughout the city. Media coverage was dominated by whites accusing Blacks of things like impolite behavior on the streetcar and deliberate intimidation. In the spring of 1917, a local newspaper called the Chester Times really pushed these rumors and stereotypes, publishing stories which conflated the rising Black population to Chester's heightened crime rates. By July, a four-day race riot broke out killing seven people and injuring hundreds. Entire rows of houses were burned down, and West 3rd Street was a battleground for hand-to-hand combat with knives, sticks, and guns. While this riot was suppressed, the racial tensions accruing in 1917 are still present here in 1933. Alright, field trip over, let's head back to a 21st century studio to explain how all of this was allowed to occur. It
0: keeps raining all the time all the time. From
1: 1906 to 1992, Chester was uninterruptedly ruled by a political machine that thrived off of these conflicts. I spoke to Professor Christopher Mele from University of Buffalo, who wrote a book on Chester called Race and Politics of Deception, The Making of an American City.
0: The common element of it is that most cities in the early 20th century had political machines that provided a kind of purpose for communities, working class communities that had very little political representation. Um, It could bring them kind of bread and butter rewards in return for, of course, strict devotion and loyalty to the party In everyday elements, but also and most explicitly when it comes time to vote.
1: What was so unique about this machine is that it survived for nearly 100 years. While most political machines ended in the 40s, Chester's lived on for another 50 years before gradually breaking apart into lone corrupt officials. The machine was run by a man named John J. McClure. McClure fueled the machine by pitting populations against each other and siphoning whatever collateral profit he could manage. For example, McClure was the one behind the scenes conflating vice and crime with black folk in the city. While this might seem counterintuitive, it shifted the blame away from the government's lack of regulation, all while profiting off the illegal activities themselves.
0: Uh, So as the more proper folks in town began to complain about the city's reputation as a place of vice, that the machines, although completely imbricated in that vice industry, used African-Americans as the front for the problems associated with gambling, prostitution, alcohol, consumption, fights, street rowdiness, et cetera. So as a quick example, often in places like in Bethnal Court, the bars and rooming houses and houses of prostitution were nominally run by Black folks, uh, individuals, or even families that ran these establishments, but they were controlled and the profits from them and the land in which they, they operated on was controlled and owned by officials associated with the Republican machine. So this kind of of deception really has its early starts. And it's one of the the kind of go-tos for the machine itself is to use race, which of course, as we know, back then
1: and still to this day, is a way to create a division that is quite clear. McClure stirred racial tensions early in Chester's history with these practices, tensions that blew up into the riots we mentioned earlier. But remember, McClure's main goal isn't necessarily profit, it's votes. Fear grew within both white and black communities. White folk were scared of black incivility due to the media's racist depictions, and black folk were scared of being physically harmed by racist whites. McClure secured the white vote by appealing to the Republican desire for law and order, and he secured the black community via promises of protection. Uh, The way in which the story
0: of black community in Chester gets connected to that is that McClure offered early on the Black community protection. Uh, Protection against, again, this is, we're talking here, early 20th century. Protection against the wrath of, of racism, of violent forms of racism in the community, especially when the population of Black residents troubles and increases due to the first Great Migration. So what McClure and others have done in other cities geniusly does, is fan the flames of racial antagonism and simultaneously offering protection to the Black community. He also, so, you know, fanning the flames, meaning as more African-Americans, especially men, move into the community, that they are taking jobs, they are threatening the civility of Chester and the culture of white Chester by their sheer numbers, and he fans that. And it's not hard to do in terms of the racial discourse of the early 20th century. It's not like he has to create it. He just uses that and employs that discourse. The protection end is what much more interesting to me. And that protection, of course, the cost of it is
1: loyalty and voting. While the machine did step in to protect loyal Black residents from white aggression, it was by no means a pro-Black institution. A good example of where things fell apart is in the Chester court system. According to Melee, McClure would often exploit Black families by setting bail at exorbitant rates and packing courts with machine judges, forcing them to rely on party connections if they ever wanted to see the light of day. McClure and his descendants continued to manipulate these racial tensions far into the U.S. civil rights movement, where the relentless fight for desegregation earned Chester the name Birmingham of the North. After several violent race riots in April of 1964, Chester's NAACP tried to take charge of the movement and promote civil disobedience. This attempt to calm racial tensions didn't bode well with McClure, who did something I feel like we only ever see in movies. He secretly planted a more radical black activist to infiltrate and divide the NAACP. The activist's name was Stanley Branch. Branch's call for violent protests restirred Chester's racial tensions and led to more deadly riots throughout the civil rights movement. These riots ensured that the black community would turn out at elections for the machine to get protection, all while scaring the white population into fleeing the city to peaceful county suburbs. And whether violent activism was a better strategy than civil disobedience in tearing down segregation was irrelevant to McClure. He just wanted the chaos. By the end of 1964, The combination of structural Black poverty and the flight of white residents to the suburbs was bankrupting the city. Under President Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty, Congress passed the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964, seeking to address entrenched poverty in cities like Chester. The city received a number of federal grants and assistance as part of this bill to reconstruct and further develop the city. Unfortunately, there wasn't much supervision on how these resources were used, so much of the grants were just filtered back into the Republican machine rather than to the people of Chester. State and local government didn't start to prosecute this long-held corruption in Chester until the 70s, when a three-year Pennsylvania Crime Commission investigation found that city police and high-ranking officials were either managing or paid off in an illegal racketeering scheme that was siphoning between $8 and $11 million from the city annually. One of the convicted officials was no other than Chester's mayor at the time, John Nacreli. He was sentenced to six years in prison, but what was bizarre about this conviction was this. Nacreli continued many of his duties as the chair of Chester's Republican Party post-conviction, which means that after he was convicted, he continued to screen job applicants for the Chester Upland School District, ensuring that only loyal appointments were made. Nocrelli only served two years of his federal sentence before being released and immediately resumed full control of party operations. Even though he wasn't mayor, Melee writes that he, quote, routinely convened backroom meetings with members of the Chester City Council without notifying the mayor, end quote. Nocrelli was also involved in the siphoning of federal aid from the city. He usurped the um,
0: war on poverty programs and the federal monies that came from them fairly quickly and swiftly and without apology.
1: I think of him as the kind of the architect of parasitism. By the 80s, McClure's machine was largely decentralized. Many of McClure's old ward bosses and precinct officers spread throughout the suburbs to expand the machine's control over all of Delaware County. At this point, Chester itself is now predominantly Black. It's lost 20,000 people since the 50s and is struggling to fill the empty stores that once populated West 3rd Street. Nevertheless, the corrupt remnants of McClure's machine had one last plot to exploit Chester forever. It came in the name of a trash incinerator. The Republican Delaware County Council announced a bid for a waste incinerator to site in the city of Chester and process all of the county's waste. The city, who had just elected its first female African-American mayor, Willie May Leake, was quick to oppose the project, but not for the reason you might think. Consider the history of Chester up until this point. Black folk in the city have been terrorized by whites for decades. Whether it's through vice industries or by having their federal aid stolen, people of color in Chester were constantly broken off the short end of the stick while white people profited. Now, many of those same white people want to send all of their trash to Chester, get paid for it at the county level, and offer a pittance to Chester. Mayor Leake was infuriated, and her response shocked the county. She announced Chester was going to build their own incinerator. And for the city, this was an act of absolute empowerment. A local Baptist minister, who served as the former local NAACP president, said about the plan, quote, We are down on our knees and we need to be picked back up. This project could bring us back to the good days. We will be able to stand on our own feet. End quote. To give you an idea of how influential this mayor was, let me read you this passage from Mele's book. Mm. In a high-stakes effort to find a new site for the incinerator, Mayor Leake asked the residents of Chester's majority black West End neighborhood to quote-unquote sacrifice their homes. The city proposed taking 248 homes, 50 vacant lots, and seven businesses on 22 acres along the waterfront. Mayor Leake first calmed the skeptical crowd, telling them, As I enter here tonight, I saw some very unhappy faces. Remember that I am here for your benefit, not to hurt you. To build her case for the residents' consent, the mayor reminded the audience of the importance of the incinerator as the best and last chance to address the city's poverty, high crime rate, and declining tax base. Leake made a personal appeal for racial solidarity with the predominantly black crowd, declaring that, quote, as a black woman, she had their best interests at heart, end quote. Pause. So here Mayor Leake is trying to convince an angry crowd of people that they should give up their homes to build an incinerator. And as someone who was neither in that room nor a part of Chester's long embittered history, this may not seem convincing. Well, let me read on. The crowd stood in joined hands and prayed with the mayor. Then residents, many of whom were angry at the meeting's onset, walked over to shake the mayor's hand, kiss her cheek, and wish her good luck with the project. One of the residents spoke to the crowd. Quote, I am for anything that will help Chester. I'm willing to give up my house that I have lived in since I was nine months old. Mayor Leek, if you want my house tonight, you can have it. Regardless of what you think of Mayor Leek's plan, this passage from Melee's book depicts a powerful moment for the people of Chester. They stood up, locked hands, and were ready for a fight. This came as a shock to many environmentalists who were gearing up to fight the county's permit. All of a sudden, the conversation was no longer about, should we site an incinerator in Chester? It was, who will site an incinerator in Chester? According to the 1997 book titled, Don't Burn It Here, grassroots Challenges to Trash Incinerators, this change in framing was the nail in the coffin for Chester's heir. Let me explain. During the permitting process, residents are able to crowd council meetings and voice their opinion in opposition to the facility in question. But the book states that the ownership debate between the city and the county dominated community discourse and directly implicated the ease with which the permit was obtained. So McClure's decades of pinning white people against black people culminated into an aggressive turf war which sold Chester's air in perpetuity. Now, unfortunately, both Melee and the Don't Burn It Here novel claimed that Mayor Leake was never going to win this battle of incinerators. The county had way more resources and connections. Nevertheless, they still needed Chester City Council's permission to start building the facility. But obviously, Mayor Leake vehemently refused. As if this story wasn't bizarre enough already, the county brought in no other than the corrupt and at this point convicted racketeer former Mayor Nacrelli to broker a behind-the-scenes negotiation with the city. According to a high-ranking Chester official from the time, Nacrelli was using the political machine's remnant power to threaten councilmen. The official said about one councilman, quote, Nacrelli had just really come down hard on him and that he threatened to withhold the organization's support regarding his reelection bid the next year, end quote. After a last-minute meeting with Nacreli before the vote, this councilman switched his position and supported the county project entirely. According to Don't Burn It Here, leaked supporters started calling him Judas for betraying his fellow African-American residents. After these backdoor threats, the city greenlighted the county's incinerator. Imagine how corrupt your party has to be, that you hire a convicted felon and corrupt machine boss to broker your deals. Amidst all this chaos... Westinghouse Electric Corporation built the country's largest trash incinerator with a lot less pushback than they expected. Had it not been for a century-long political machine topped off by a convicted felon's handshake, Chester very well may have never built an incinerator. The real pushback didn't start until after they opened their doors.
0: I'm weary old.
1: Thank you for listening to episode two, part one of Chester is Rising. There's more history to cover as the incinerator begins to burn. The fight has only just begun.